0: Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 20. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and look. I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand. And of the seven golden lampstands is this, the seven stars are the, the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Amen. This is God's word. Well, they sat wide-eyed and still on the sofa as Aslan was finally introduced. Uh, we were reading C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe to our kids. And Lewis, the storytelling genius that he is, had kept them waiting for a full seven chapters for a mere mention of Aslan. And another chapter for a proper description. They knew it was coming, of course. It's in the title, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. But as Susan and Lucy Pevensey asked the questions that uh, our kids had been asking, who is Aslan? And is, is he a man? The kids drew in a, a deep breath and seemed to hold it for half a chapter as the beavers answered, Aslan, a man, asked, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not, I tell you. He is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. It's brilliant, isn't it? The kids let go of their held in breath and exhaled the awe that had just filled their little hearts at this sound, this description of Aslan and Lewis, had just helped them grasp the concept of majesty. Aslan, as Lewis depicts him, is terrifyingly approachable. Lewis has made you want to meet him, and at the same time made you scared to meet him. Now, of course, behind the genius of Aslan is, of course, the glory of Christ. Lewis is only stealing thunder, God's thunder. Of course, he gets the idea of a terrifyingly approachable character from Jesus Christ. From biblical descriptions like Revelation 1, where Christ is so shut your mouth and fall down dead magnificent, and at the same time, wonderfully reassuring to his people. And Jesus wants to know this about himself, that he wants the church to know this, because it strengthens the persecuted, It stables the warriors, it uh, stabilizes the warriors, sorry. It motivates the evangelists and it prods the lazy and it warns the sinner. So so as we look at it together, I've got three points. And the first is this, look, he's terrifyingly glorious and he's among us. Verses nine to 12. This shows us Christ's great concern for his churches and uh, three things in verses 9 to 12 show us this. Firstly, the way it's introduced to us shows us that. It's quite surprising isn't it that Jesus doesn't start with a greeting for his old friend John. Uh, John was one of the twelve and one of the three that shared some of the most significant moments in Christ's life. He was there, John that is, at the cross when everyone else had fled and uh, Christ's love for John is seen even when from the cross he asks John specifically to care for his mother Mary. Now, when we look in verse 10, this when this attention-grabbing voice is heard, what is the first thing that Jesus says? Uh, it, it's not a greeting, is it? There's no, hello. It, there's no friendly inquiry. No, there's no, how's it going? Jesus doesn't actually even say John's name in here. No, just as it was with the Old Testament prophets uh, commissioned to write something down, whether it's Moses or Isaiah or Jeremiah or someone like that, it is right down to business. Write what you see, he says. It's the first thing John hears. Send it to the churches. That's Christ's concern. Secondly, the focus of, Christ shows that his concern, for the, his concern is for the churches too. His focus. He knows that they are badly treated for believing in him. And John says so even in verse 9, using the word ours. Ours is the word he uses to describe the suffering and the patient endurance that they share in. Now, they're not in prison because of the gospel like John is, but they're no less persecuted. But what we see is that Jesus knows them personally. We'll see this in the coming weeks, of course, in chapters 2 and 3. But Jesus knows them by name and he loves them. And these are actual churches addressed in a circular order geographically. But, of course, Christ's focus and concern for his church is not just for these seven. It's for all of us. You see, if you remember from last time, seven is the number of fullness. It's a symbol of completeness and revelation. It's for these churches, of course, but they represent the whole church throughout the age of the church. We share their struggles, we share their problems, we share the promises that are held out to them, strength for today and hope for tomorrow. Third thing, the positioning of Christ shows his concern for the churches. When John turns to see who's speaking to him, to see the voice, as it says in verse 12. What does he notice first? Have a look. Strange. Furniture. I turned to see the voice speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, it's strange. I mean, to notice the stage before the star, John sees lampstands before he sees the king. Why? Well, he's not telling you this because he enjoys a little bit of interior design in his spare time. He's telling you this, obviously, because it matters. And this is what he's led to see first. So the question we must ask is, what's the significance of the lampstands? Well, friends, the answer is in the text. Verse 20, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And where is Jesus? Verse 13, among the lampstands. Do you see what this means? It means that Jesus is personally present in the life of his churches. The significance of this is magnified massively, of course, in the Old Testament, especially through the prophet Zechariah. In Zechariah 4, there is another mention of a lampstand, but there's only one. And that lampstand symbolises God's presence with his people. Now that one lampstand has seven uh, little branches with seven little lamps on top. They symbolise God's presence too in, in two particular ways. First of all, the shape of it, the shape of this lampstand is designed to represent, we believe, the tree of life in Eden, where of course God's people walked in the presence of God. Secondly, The little lamps in Zechariah 4 represent the indwelling power, the presence in other words, of the Holy Spirit, the sevenfold spirit of God that we saw last week in Revelation 1 verse 4. And he, that spirit, that same spirit is at work to build. Now in Zechariah 4, it's a physical temple that's being built and God will figuratively speaking, symbolically live in it, dwell among his people. But in Revelation 1 verse 12, there are seven lampstands representing the church made up of all peoples from all places who are also indwelt by the spirit. Who, by the way, is still in the business of construction, except it's not a physical temple that he's building made of bricks, but a spiritual building, a church made up of living stones like you and me. It's incredible, isn't it? This book is for us. It strengthens us. It strengthens churches throughout the whole world, but it strengthens local churches like Charlotte Chapel. The awesome triune God of glory is with us. Christ is present among his churches. The Holy Spirit indwells those churches and is building up the kingdom through those churches. And all with Revelation 21's tree in view, the tree of life, the new heaven and new earth, where we'll walk again with God. Now, this vision is meant for us and we see, of course, that it has a purpose. Uh, you see, looking to Christ and seeing him for who he is recalibrates us. And this is point two. Look, he's terrifyingly glorious and his awe recalibrates us. In verses 13 to 16, they contain the most detailed description we have of Jesus in our Bibles. I mean, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John never give us any description of his face or his height or anything like that the clearest description that we have of him is here and it's symbolic. So who he is and what he's done matters more than what he looks like. But while you can't draw a portrait, I guess you could use verses 13 to 16 as a collage of sorts. Now you know what a collage is. It's uh, it's when you take photographs or paper or fabric and stick it all down, piece it all together in order to create a new picture. Well, all 10 descriptions that we have in here in verses 13 to 16 are really pictures and fabrics and cuttings of scripture taken from the Old Testament to show us Jesus in all his glory. So first of all, you have in verse 13, the the Sovereign Lord. That's what Jesus reveals about himself. It's a cutting from Daniel 7. When John says he sees someone like a son of man, your mind is taken to there. Now, son of man is not a description of Jesus' humanity. It's actually a description of his deity. The son of man, you see, in the book of Daniel, has authority, glory, and sovereign power that never, ever ends. And neither does the worship he receives from people from every nation. This is what he receives from the ancient of days. He is the Lord but he's also the sec of the second and third things the third things that we see in this passage that he's our great high priest because verse 13 continues with a cutting from numbers the robe and the sash they are priestly clothes in the old testament of course a priest offered sacrifices for sin and taught the people about god and that's exactly what christ has done uh, these clothes though are a bit of a fashion statement their length their height their colour, say something about the quality of his priesthood. He has faithfully taught the truth and offered not an animal but himself for his people's salvation. He truly is therefore our great high priest. The fourth thing that we see from this passage is that he is infinitely wise. Verse 14 cuts a second section from Daniel 7 to paste here, where it talks about his hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. Now, in our culture, white hair is a sign of age in most cases, and we don't uh, like looking old, so we dye it. Most people do, some people do. But in the Bible, white hair represents wisdom and dignity and maturity, and that's what John is helping us to see in Jesus the Son. Fifthly, we see from John's description that Christ sees all things with holy perception. Look again at verse 14 with me. Here is a description of his eyes. Not one mention of colour or shape. No, his eyes are simply described as like blazing fire. Now, that's Daniel 10. In Daniel 10, it's God's eyes that have a description like this. They have penetrating insight, in other words. He can see everything and no one can disagree with the clarity of his judgment. It's judgment, of course, that is in view. The sixth thing John helps us to see is that Jesus the Son is gloriously victorious. This is what the bronze feet of verse 15 signify. Now, anything that's bronze in the Old Testament usually means that sin's involved. And feet are used symbolically for, well, the trampling of the defeated, the trampling of defeated enemies. So whether it's serpents or death, John wants us to see he's our champion. The seventh thing he wants us to see, well, here is the voice that thunders with authority. Christ's voice is like the sound of rushing waters. I don't know if you've ever tried talking to someone um, when you're next to a waterfall. You really do need to shout when the water's rushing. Even if it's a small one, you have to raise your voice. Because rushing waters are thunderously loud. They are unmissable and strong. And that's what's being communicated here. And Christ's voice, like the thunderous waters, is just like God's voice in Ezekiel 43. And that's the point. Nobody can avoid what he says. Nobody can undo what he says. Everyone is apprehended by what he says, when he said it, and no one can stop what he says. The eighth thing that uh, we're led to see is that Christ is the commander, even of angelic forces. He has power in the spiritual realm. In his right hand, verse 16, he held seven stars. Now, what what are those? What's that for? The answers in the text, verse twenty, they're the angels who look after the churches. They do his bidding, uh, so his authority, Christ's authority, extends even to the heavenly realms. The ninth thing that John helps us to see is that Christ speaks with piercing judgment. That's what verse sixteen is talking about, with this sharp sword coming out of his mouth, and it's two-edged, of course. Now this is a double cutting from the book of Isaiah. And again, judgment is in view. The two-edged design says that both the world and the church are to be judged. We'll figure out what that looks like in the coming weeks as we look at chapters two and three. But at least, I guess you could say, the church, those who will be judged are those who call themselves churches, but aren't. And the 10th thing that we see, finally, about this glorious Christ is that his face is incomparably glorious. Again, no mention of the detail. Verse 16, his face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. Supremely brilliant. Who can stare at the sun? It's unmatched, even in the heavenly lights. We can look at the moon, we can't look at the sun. It's too brilliant. Is this how we see Jesus? That's the question we have to ask here. Or is it possible that we as a church have lost our awe? Familiarity makes us lose our awe. Uh, We can spend so much time thinking about the great things about the Lord Jesus and about God and the gospel that these things just become little things to us. They're no longer, wow, they're like, hmm, that's bad. Uh, We can have an imbalance in our understanding and that can make us lose our awe. I mean, sometimes we see... Uh, We like Jesus, the friend who loves us and maybe ignores conveniently, uh, who calls for our obedience. We ignore conveniently that he is Lord, uh, who calls for us to do the things that he, by his grace and power, uh, provides us for us to do. In fact, imbalance can even make our approach irreverent. I mean, I remember being at a conference for Scotch pastors and hearing one of them talk about how he praise and how he sits with a chair, an empty chair opposite himself. And as he described it, an imagined and friendly and frank conversation with Jesus. Um, The friendliness was evident even in the way he spoke to him and even in his prayers at the conference. He addressed Jesus as his pal, uh, as his bro. Uh, the frankness was obvious in his prayers too, where he'd speak almost accusingly at Jesus, as if to say, "Hey, this thing that's going on in my life, what's all this about? What are you doing?" It was so odd, and he would justify it all by saying, "Ah, Jesus is a great pastor, a great listener. He is happy to, you know, patiently explain lots of things to him. You know, Jesus is big enough to handle these kind of conversations." And he even encouraged the members of his church family to uh, do the same thing. Now, I understand the sentiment, okay? Christ is our brother and he is our friend. We can speak to him on familial and relational terms because he loves us and we love him. But this, it that's irreverence. And this is where Lewis's terrifying approachability of Aslan illustrates the way we approach Christ, doesn't it? I mean, the the beaver who said, I, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Now, which one was he? You know, C.S. Lewis could actually have helped this man understand just that little bit more about reverence, Uh, writing about the the time when uh, the Pevensey children finally got to meet Aslan and finally got to talk to Aslan. Uh, He writes, the children didn't know what to do or say when they saw him, Aslan. People who have not been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. If the children had ever thought so, they were cured of it now. For when they tried to look at Aslan's face, they just caught a glimpse of the golden mane and the great royal solemn overwhelming eyes. And then they found they couldn't look at him and went all trembly. And when he spoke, it says his voice was deep and rich and somehow took the fidgets out of them. They now felt glad and quiet and it didn't seem awkward to them to stand and say nothing reverence. That's what John did. And this is point three. Look, he's terrifyingly glorious and that produces awe. Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. If anyone could have addressed Jesus with friendliness and frankness or bounded up to him for a hug from a long lost friend. It was John, but he doesn't. He doesn't speak irreverently. He can't even speak. Jesus is that glorious. John doesn't hold out his arms for a hug. He falls on his face. Jesus is that glorious. He does just as Daniel did. He did just as Isaiah did when The appearance of the Lord, the glory of the Lord was revealed to him. Isaiah, who at his vision said, woe is me, I'm undone. Literally, I'm coming apart. Yes, this is what happens. When we see Christ for who he is, it produces awe or fear. But there are two kinds of fear, of course. There's a kind of fear that makes you want to escape, to run and a fear that makes you want to stay and worship. If you're not a believer, if you don't love and worship Jesus Christ, a vision like this will make you afraid of meeting him if you are yet unforgiven. He is so great, no one can stand in his presence. There's this scene in uh, John's Gospel where on the night before he is crucified, Uh, Jesus is being arrested by a group of guards and they're armed and he's not and he walks out to meet them but he's in charge of the proceedings. Uh, He asks them who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth they replied and he says I am he and he's deliberate with his words. It's a claim to deity really. I am he he replies. Now when Jesus said I am he John tells us they Drew back and fell to the ground. Now, as he reveals his name and his identity with it, it's almost like Jesus has flexed his divine bicep, allowing something of the the tiniest slither of his power and his glory to emanate from himself, and everyone before him is floored. Do you see what this means? No one could stand in the presence of God. Everybody loses their footing, even his dear friend John. Now, friend, who if you do not believe the gospel, if neither strong men nor outstanding servants of God could stand before Jesus when His glory was veiled, how will we ever stand before Him when His glory is revealed in all its majesty? and strength. It is only by bowing to him. It is only by believing in him that we that he, believing that he did what he went on to do that following day to make it possible for us to be touched by him and reassured by him. You see, he went to that cross deliberately. He died to take away the sin of all who would turn to him in faith and repentance. To make those people holy, set apart, uh, holy in God's sight, like he is, and to be fit one day for heaven, to worship, and to have that opportunity, finally, to gaze on the one, to actually gaze on the one set before us in symbols in Revelation 1. Only then do we know, by faith, the touch and the words of the reassurance of Jesus and a right fear of God, which is what believers have. Don't be afraid, Jesus says. Now notice that. (laughs) Jesus doesn't say, John, get up, man. Come on, you're embarrassing me. No. The fear and the awe that John is showing by falling face down and acting as though he's dead is entirely appropriate when you have sight of someone so wonderfully majestic and glorious. Fear is right. And yet Jesus reaches down to touch him and with a word to reassure him saying, don't be afraid, do not fear. Now. Isn't that a fantastic description of the Christian life right there? How to fear, yet how not to fear. Uh, Be afraid, but don't be afraid. Now, and this is right, isn't it? It's when you grasp the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom because it helps you grasp who God is. How wonderfully and gloriously different he is to us. His otherness. His aseity, to use the theological term. And yet, he is terrifying on one hand, but approachable on the other. He is glorious, and yet for us. So my encouragement for you, for us as a whole church, is to read Revelation 1 again. It's to sit wide-eyed, and still like my kids were when they heard us read about Aslan. But as you read the description of the one Aslan is based on Jesus Christ, as you read the description of his majesty, as you see again the things that we that ought to produce in us a holy fear and reverence, and yet as you see the touch and hear the tender words of care and approachability, as you see him as the king, the great king, recognize he isn't safe, but he is good.